and discerning truth. And today we're going to be talking about why we can trust the Bible. To start us off this morning, though, we're going to be combining our collective knowledge as a group. Well, I know the answers here, but you're going to be combining your collective knowledge as a group to try to figure out what are the top 10 most followed religions in the world. All right, any guesses? Just name a religion that you think is within the top 10. Okay, Christianity. Yep. Yep. You said Islam? Oh, okay. Okay, okay. That one is for free, and you guys got it. It's at 50% bonus points. Okay, what's another one you think? Catholicism, that we'll just lump that in with Christianity. They Hinduism? Yep. Hinduism is in the top 10. Taoism is not. Uh, Buddhism is... I will get there in a second. That's number, Buddhism is number five. There's one above Buddhism, though. Hmm, no, Taoism, no. Nope, Judaism is not in the top ten. Okay, I'm just going to give it to you. Yeah, you're not going to get this. It's, it's Chinese traditional religion, which um, is a mixture of Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, astrology, animal totems, and ancestral worship. So, they kind of lump that all in to uh, traditional Chinese religion. There's a lot of people who believe in this kind of way. It, I think it shifts a lot exactly what that means. But there we go. And you guys already mentioned Buddhism. That's number five. Number six. Guesses? No. It's a good guess, though. Once again, I did not know this until I looked it up, so I'm just going to give you the answer because I don't think we're going to get there. Primal indigenous. Yeah, that's that was your next guess, probably, I think. Uh, so this is kind of like old traditional, like tribal village uh, kind of beliefs. They have 300 million people. Uh, another one that you guys might not get is African traditional religion. And there's like 100 million people who uh, believe kind of these old, ancient, tribal, once again, kind of religions. Okay. Now, number eight, number eight here is actually a pretty popular one that you may have heard the name of. Any guesses? No, not Judaism. Whoa! <laughs> Got really loud all of a sudden. No, 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 Scientology, no. Wiccan, no. That, mm. That might be close to number 10. It's in that realm. It's getting there. Um, let me think. Is there a hint I can give you? Uh, they traditionally carry swords. <laughs> Sikhism. Sikhism. Okay, number nine. Does anybody know the official religion of North Korea? North Korea. There's a religion there, believe it or not. <laughs> nope. Nope. It's called Jushay. 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 And Jushay is really focused on man, man-centric worship. Um, you can guess who it might be worshiping. Number 10, you're close with Wiccan. Um, definitely has to do with um, disembodiment and thinking. Yep, spiritism, exactly. 15 million people, and that's... Spiritualism is slightly different than spiritism, although sometimes they are used interchangeably. 
But Spiritism believes in disembodied spirits that can carry on relationships with living people and even in reincarnation. They believe that you can come back. So these are the top 10 religions that are followed by population in the world. Do you guys have any guesses about how many religions there are in the world? This is just a rough number. Any, any guesses on how many religions? 50? Now that's, pretty, that's pretty low compared to the number. There are a lot more. That was a good guess because we've only listed 10 here and we couldn't think of many more. That's a little high. Go somewhere in between 50 and 25,000. <laughs> 51. If it was the price is right, you would have got it. Oh, even a little higher. A little lower. Okay, you're getting closer. 4,300. I mean, we're, we're getting there. We would have got there eventually, I'm sure. They, the, at least according to my research. There are about 4,300 different religions in the world. And when we look at these facts, and we look at all these different religions, no one would blame you for wondering if maybe there are other avenues to truth, or maybe um, whether or not the Bible is trustworthy, right? You're, you're looking, and there's all these other belief systems out there, and, and I'm sure people genuinely believe that the religion they're following is true, or they probably wouldn't be following it, right? So why then should we trust the Bible? Overall, do these faiths lead to truth or not? Do they have validity in them? Why would we put our faith in the Bible over other religious documents? So is there something that sets the Bible apart? That's one of the questions. Something that makes it special. Is there some evidence to help us ground ourselves in the truth? Is there something to help us build trust in this document called the Bible? I, I think... We all understand the importance of that question, right? If we can trust the Bible, then it helps us to discern truth because then we have a place to pull authority from. And that's pretty important when we're trying to find truth. So let's go ahead and jump into some evidence here. So this is going to be a little bit different of a message than normal because I want to lay out to you some propositions, some what I consider pretty strong evidence to why maybe we can trust the Bible. And a lot of what I uh, have here, I leaned on Cold Case Christianity, which is J. Warner Wallace's uh, kind of book, and he has an organization about helping to prove the trustworthiness of Scripture in a logical and uh, maybe un pretty understandable way. And there, he's not the first person to think about this. For the last 2,000 years, people have been uh, trying to authenticate the Bible and to prove that it's trustworthy. So the first reason I think the Bible is trustworthy is that it is written early and in the right region. By this, I mean that there's historical evidence that points to both the authors of the New Testament living in the same years as Jesus and writing their books within 20 or 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's very, 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 very close to the actual moments of Jesus's life that we get the first written documents of Jesus's life. Now you might say 20 or 30 years sounds like a long time to between the events and then the actual writing of the down a lot could have gotten miscommunicated in that time or changed or whatever. But think about this analogy to help you 
feel that time as if it's not quite as big as it is because historically speaking, that's extremely close, like almost negligible. So think about this. Let's say there's a, a guy who went to Vietnam, right? He went to the war and he was transformed by his experience there, right? And he comes home after uh, he's uh, discharged from the military and then he goes around the country and does seminars and speeches about talking about his experience there and maybe he's changed to anti-war. He's against the war now and that's what he's communicating, right? So he goes around the country and he talks and he does that for a decade sharing his beliefs. And then he's like, you know what? I think it's time for me to write a book about what I did in Vietnam. So he writes that book and it takes him 10 years. So 20 years after he left, he publishes his book about Vietnam. We would consider that a reliable source about what actually happened over there, right? We wouldn't question, hey, is this guy actually telling us what he experienced or did he forget it all? No, we would say that's a reliable experience. You can remember things 20 years ago. It's not like we just forget everything, especially things that really impact our lives. Now imagine there are 12 guys who served together in the war. They left and then they all decided to start writing about their experiences. We would say, oh yeah, that is definitely a very reliable account of what actually happened. Well, that is exactly what we have with the New Testament. Right? We have people who went through this life transformation, this really important part of their lives, and then they talked about it for a long time, taking notes, I'm sure, along the way. And then afterwards, they decided to write it down so that it can be preserved and spread around. That's exactly what happened. And we know that uh, at least what the authors saw, what they wrote down, is that they were eyewitnesses. Right? Look at 1 John 1, 1 through 4. What was from the beginning and what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you so that our joy may be made complete. So, we can see here that they call themselves personal eyewitnesses of what happened. Right? They were there physically. They touched, they saw, they heard, they spoke, they walked, they slept, they ate. They were eyewitnesses. They were there. And they wrote down what they saw. This is the only place that gets mentioned, it gets mentioned here in Second Peter and Acts as well and other places, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. His God, or him, Jesus, God raised up on the third day and followed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him, talking about Jesus, after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he who ordained, who was ordained by God to judge of the living of the dead, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So in the court of law, eyewitnesses are counted as 
a high, high value thing. If someone, if two people come together, three or four especially, and even more say, this is what happened, then it's, it is taken seriously by the jury and the judge. So if you get in a car wreck and there was people sitting in Panera and they saw through the window the person run right into you and that person says, no, he hit me. And everybody in Panera says, no, he obviously ran into you. you. And then the cop gets there and he's like, well, there's 15 people here saying differently than you. Eyewitnesses matter, right? So if you're trying to make up a lie, if you're trying to make up a lie about something, if that's really what the authors of the New Testament were trying to do, if they were lying, you better not do it in a place where there are eyewitnesses, and you better not do it in the time when it might have happened. So, if you wanted to lie, the New Testament authors would not have written their books within 20 years of Jesus' life. They would have waited centuries. They would have made up something else, right, where no one can prove if it's right or wrong. But they wrote in the time of other people who saw Jesus. So if they didn't write truthful things, those people would come out and just say, no, that's not what happened, and their entire thing would fall apart. They also wrote it in the region where Jesus lived, and we're talking to people who actually knew Jesus, right? So they couldn't make up lies because they'd be called out on the carpet for being a lie, and then we would have a record of, oh, yeah, there were these 12 guys that came together and made up a story about this guy named Jesus, and he's obviously not real, right? But that's not the case. It was written close to Jesus in the right region, and it was copied as truth. It was supported as truth. So number two, evidence, I think, why the Bible is trustworthy, is that it is internally consistent. Now, the Bible isn't one book. As you probably know, it's actually a collection of 66 books written over the course of thousands of years by multiple different authors. And throughout changes in time and culture and authors, there is one continuous and constant message. You do not find one teaching in Genesis that contradicts something in Paul, for example, right? The entire Bible is consistent in what it teaches. The same characteristics of God are there in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same principles of faith, and the list goes on and on. It's almost as if there's one higher author, one being telling and inspiring people as to what to write to convey a clear teaching and ideas, right? Because think about this. Think about what has changed in our world over the last thousand years. Think about the cultural differences and the way that people talk differently and the way that ideas have changed. Just think about voting rights and equality. Like, there's been so much that's changed in the last thousand years, right? But yet, over the course of thousands of years, the Bible remains consistent. I mean, I change from day to day. You might even hear me say something else one day. I might contradict myself tomorrow. Because I find, you know, Nate's like, yeah, you definitely, you're definitely going to make a mistake and you're going to contradict yourself. That's what people do. People make mistakes. They're hypocritical. They contradict themselves. But the, over the course of thousands of years, the Bible does not. That's pretty compelling, I think. I think if you think about that and what that implies, it's pretty incredible. Try to get 66, well, I guess there aren't 66 authors. 
Try to get like 25 people in our room and get them all to agree about something. <laughs> it's tricky. Number three, the Bible be, can be corroborated by outside sources. So both the New and Old Testament are corroborated by archaeological evidence and non-Christian historical support from skeptical historians, right? People who do not believe in Jesus as the Son of God record things in Scripture that actually have happened. I'm going to show you some examples of archaeological and historical evidence. So the first one is the Tel Dan inscription. And so this is a stone that was found um, in Israel, and it reads House of David, right? And it's found beneath this ash layer that's in Israel, and this ash layer is known to be dated pretty accurately to 733 BC. So that's before Christ, centuries before Jesus. And it's well agreed upon by archaeologists, both secular and Christian, that anything beneath this ash layer is found probably to be dated back to the 8th and 9th century if it's right below this ash layer. So this uh, Tel Dan inscription being found right below this ash layer in Israel, right where it should be found in the exact right time, has tremendous proof and evidence that David was actually a real person. That King David of the Old Testament that we read lived and had a dynasty and had inscriptions made about him. That's just one example. Another interesting archaeological find is the Moabite stone. So this is a stone tablet that dates back to 850 BC. And this is from the Moabites. It's not from the Jews. This is from a different nation. And it records the war between the Moabites and the northern kingdom of Israel. The exact same war with the same details that we read in 2 Kings chapter 3. So two historically different, different nations making a record of the exact same events in the exact same time. Pretty interesting. However, there is a difference in perspective. The Moabite tablets like to talk about the times that they won things, right? And the times that they succeeded. And 2 Kings chapter 3 talks about Israel's perspective and what happened with Israel and how they became victorious over the Moabites, right? Same story, same details, just a slightly different perspective from different nations. But pretty cool that we found this. There are also three prisms that record the story of the Assyrian king Sennacherib that were commissioned by the Assyrian uh, nation that recorded what they did, their conquests, right? So there's the Taylor prism on the left, the Oriental Institute prism in the middle, and then there's the Jerusalem prism on the right, and that's pretty much where they reside or who found them. So if you recall, Sennacherib was the king who seized uh, Jerusalem, sorry, sieged Jerusalem, and stood up against Hezekiah, and he said to Hezekiah, hey, uh, give me a bunch of gold and give your city over to me and everything will be fine. Hezekiah's like, I don't want to do that. So he brings his concern to God, and he prays and he says, hey, God, help us here. And what happens? <laughs> God strikes a pretty devastating blow to the Assyrian army, and then they leave, right? The interesting thing is in that these prisms record Sennacherib saying he had Hezekiah in a bird, like a bird in a cage, right? So, and the Assyrians were brutal. I mean, they would like skin people and hang them up on city gates and like some pretty nasty stuff. And they loved talking about it. They loved fear. They loved being this dominating power. 
And so Heze- or Sennacherib says, I had Hezekiah like a bird in the cage on his prisms here, the recorded. And then it just skips by what happens, and it goes on to the next village, the next town that they were taking. Pretty convenient that there's no details about the raiding of Jerusalem in Sennacherib's prisons, because guess what? They didn't get a chance to. They had to turn tail and go home, and then Sennacherib was killed. Right? Pretty convenient that this historical document that was recorded by the Assyrians does not mention anything about what they did to Jerusalem, the amazing victory they had, the people they killed, or anything like that. The Assyrians loved mentioning that stuff. has no mention of it. Just mentions Hezekiah, that he had him like a bird in a cage, like siege Jerusalem, and then it goes on. Pretty interesting. That's exactly what happens in Scripture. So, this is archaeological evidence. Let's go to some historical evidence. So, there is Thallus, who is a secular historian and writer, and he dates back to 52 AD, so within 20 or 30 years of Jesus. And he recorded many of the same first century events that the Bible does, except he recorded it from a secular perspective. Now, his original writings have been lost to us at this point, but there was another historian named Julius Africanus, who is a really well-known historian from the second, uh, second and third century, so just 150 years, who had copies of Thallus's books, and he recorded quotes from his books into his books, which we have now. I know it's a little confusing, but historians think it's pretty reliable. And this is a quote from Thallus from a skeptical point of view, talking about when Jesus was crucified and the day went dark. On the whole world were pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by the earthquake, by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallius, in his third book of his history, calls as an appearance to me without reason an eclipse to the sun, of the sun. So Julius Africanus is making a statement about Thallius's record, and he says, this is what Thallius says, and it seems to me there was an inexplicable solar eclipse that blacked out everything at the exact same time an earthquake happened when Jesus was killed right? Which is exactly what we read in scripture. And Julius is like, I don't know what to make of this, but it happened. I don't think it's because Jesus is the son of God, though. He's a skeptic. So while Thallius and Julius tried to explain away what happened, it confirms what happened, that there really is this time of darkness that fell over Judea at this earthquake as a historical fact. Pretty interesting. Another Roman historian, Tacitus, who lived in the second century, um, just a hundred years after Jesus, um, records this history of how Nero blamed the Christians for the fires in Rome. And this is what he says, uh, the remark he made about it. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our uh, procurators, Pontus Pilatus. Pontus Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition. Just checked, thus checked for the moment, again, broke out only, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So Tatticus says, 
hey, Nero blamed uh, the fire on these people called the Christians who were willing to be tortured for their faith, went through terrible persecution. And then he also mentions Tiberius, like the source of this religion, where under Tiberius, this guy named Christ was apparently killed and it had its source in Judea, which is proof of a historical fact the recollection that Jesus was actually crucified and killed and that this religion started in Judea. Historical fact outside the Bible that talks about Jesus's death. Of course, he does not see it as true. Once again, he's a skeptic. And then there's another Greek historian named Lucian, and he specialized in, um, he was a writer that specialized in satire, which is using the language where it sounds like it's truth to make fun of something. Um, where he uses real facts as uh, sometimes sarcasm, essentially. And this is the sarcastic statement he makes about Christians, right? The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. And he's thinking, like, we have a Greek pantheon. They're worship, worshiping this guy. They're so stupid. So they worship this man to this day. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites, like their practices, and was crucified on that account. You see... These misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and the voluntary self-devotion which um, they are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they were all brothers from the moment that they were converted and deny the gods of the Greece, deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws, all of this they take quite on faith with the result that they are despised with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike regarding them merely as common property isn't that just such an interesting historical perspective of what christians are They're like there's these crazy people who wish, who uh think this guy that was killed in judea is really important and they think they're going to live forever and uh, they don't care about dying and they don't care about owning things which is exactly what we find in scripture and it proves that jesus was crucified and it's outside the bible super interesting to me the whole roman world in fact was really annoyed by christians and they knew that they were real and they recorded what was going on and of course this archaeological and historical evidence isn't 100 percent proof of jesus um it's not proof that he's the son of god and that he was resurrected it doesn't prove any of that but it does prove that he was real that these events that the bible records like darkness and scripture and crucifixion those things actually happened there were followers who were willing to die and be tortured for their faith right and then I, there's a lot more evidence a lot more things we can go through but i'm going to leave you with this one today the last piece of evidence i think and it's so important, is experienced and observable personal regeneration. I think some of the strongest evidence we have to the proof of what Scripture says is how people are changed when they come to Christ. Now, if you've given your life to Christ, you've probably experienced some of that change yourself. And you can hopefully, hopefully see in yourself that you're not the same person that you were before Jesus. As in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed, being changed, into the image of his ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. I personally know 
I have seen many people in my life who have went through major differences, changes in personality, changes in temperament. They now have peace. They're dedicated, they're patient, and they're loving. Those things just don't happen overnight for no reason, right? You don't change. You don't stop being angry. You don't stop being an addict. You don't stop your habits for no reason. Something major has to happen in your life. And when I think the Holy Spirit grabs hold of your heart, when you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, you are changed, and it's beyond you why that is happening. But we can see it in each other, and you can see it in yourself that something is real about what is going on here, right? So to bring this full circle, let's once again ask ourselves the question that we posed at the beginning of the message. Is there anything different about the Bible and this faith that makes it stand out against all 4,300 religions of the world. Today, I think we looked at four very convincing pieces of evidence that point to the answer, yes. Yes, the Bible does stand out. And while not any of these things fully prove the evidence, the, the evidence doesn't fully prove anything about Scripture, I think accumulatively, the evidence makes a very, very strong case to the validity of the Bible and to the validity of the word that it holds. So when we combine the fact that there were eyewitness accounts close to the time of Jesus in the right region, and people were willing to die for that, and we combine that with the fact that this collection of books spanning many thousands of years from many authors and many different cultural periods have a consistent message with the fact that there's historical and archaeological evidence that supports the truth of what the Bible claims to be truth, as far as the archaeological and historical record goes, with the fact that the testimony of people's lives who have encountered this truth are changed in a way that is inexplicable and should not happen. When you combine all of that together, I think you get a pretty logical, pretty logical thing that you can point to and say, you know, that belief isn't just based merely on hearsay or traditions of men, but it is based on something beyond that. Amen. It's based on truth. There's something true about it. It inherently seems to be correct. Now, I just, I'm going to leave you quickly with how does this change your life? Well, if you trust the Bible, it gives you a place to find answers gives you a document you can go back to to answer small questions like, why are we here? Where did we come from? Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is he doing and what does he want me to do? And what is truth? <laughs> it gives you the option to actually answer those questions. It also uh, builds your faith. It strengthens your faith to know this information and say, you know what, the Bible isn't just merely a book that was handed to me as a kid and now I believe it and I don't know why. You can say, you know, there's reasons I believe this. I've been, I've been changed. People around me have been changed. And it's, and it's not just that. This book is grounded in history. It has proof that what it says is accurate to what we've found. It reflects reality. And number three, I think this makes you a better evangelist. Now, I think the only thing that truly changes people is when God performs a miracle in the heart. I think it's God and Jesus that change people, not facts, right? There, there is no amount of archaeological and historical evidence that's ever going to change anybody's mind and bring them to Christ, I don't think. 
I think it's the good news, the gospel and the Holy Spirit moving in people's lives is what ultimately convince people. But I think these facts, knowing these kinds of things can be the stepping stone that maybe opens people's minds and hearts to the consideration that maybe God is real, that maybe the Bible is trustworthy, and maybe I should take a look at it to see what it has to say. So it's merely a tool to help some help get someone there. It might not work for everyone. Some people might have zero interest in the historical and archaeological evidence, but some people will. Some people do want to know that kind of stuff, and it could be a door that opens up an opportunity for them to come to the life-saving truth of the gospel. I feel like I've said so much, and you have been so patiently listening to me, and I thank you so much. And I just want to encourage you guys to never stop seeking an increase of God's knowledge, an increase to know what God is doing. Let us continue to deepen our faith. Let us continue the pursuit of truth. Please pray with me this morning. God, I thank you so much for uh, creating this amazing book, collection of books that we can have to look to, to, to figure out who you are and what you say and what you do, and to have it be so truthful and reliable and trustworthy. I just pray that you continue to deepen our faith, to keep our spirits alive and fervent for the truth. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.